Hi, you're listening to Primo Lefter. I'm Abdul. I'm Laura. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> and I'm Evan. It's Primo Lefter. Yeah. Bow, now, now, back uh, in case you couldn't tell, Laura is not actually with us this week. Yeah, that was Evan doing a very sneaky Laura impression. That was uh, absolutely not. Abdul's a liar and a snake. Um, Ab- Laura is busy living a better life, and uh, we're here. Uh, still in the content factory for you. <laughs> Laura successfully escaped. Um, you know, we had two other people on this podcast, but they were shot trying to escape the first week. A rip to a real one. Um, Simon Gorsak and Tristan Turner. Yeah. Um, they were, uh, yeah. Laura was collaborating with them to try and escape from the content factory. And then the bosses heard the sirens were going off. The dogs were chasing them. And Abdul and I were just like, kind of like clinking hammers at our station going like, huh? not us like sad elves you know yeah i'm gonna keep this job not gonna get fucking no scoped um and yeah here we are still in the content mind slaving away from you um basically ready to die yeah it's important to note that we are doing this podcast from edmonton china in a foxconn factory um so we're really happy to record uh foxconn not just a metal gear solid character (laughs) Oh um, my god! I've been on a real like Metal Gear Solid kick lately. In case you haven't noticed, uh, what's a Metal Gear Solid thing that I know? Uh, Liquid Snake sounds like cum. Uh, yeah, actually, there's a lot of cum in Metal Gear Solid. It's Metal Gear Solid is like the actual the OG game about overcoming toxic masculinity with your found family while um while uh working through your childhood trauma. Only your childhood trauma is. Your clone daddy made a nation state just for soldiers. So speaking about processing trauma with your found family while confronting toxic masculinity, we watched High Flying Bird. High Flying Burb. Hello, friends. High Flying Jonathan Livingston Seagull. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, High Flying Larry Bird. That's a basketball player, right? Yeah, Larry Bird. Yeah, basketball player. So um, uh, you watch basketball, right? And oh, me, yes, yes. Uh, but only one team. <laughs> okay, so I watch no basketball, and I'm very open about this. I'm becoming a fake fan of the Toronto Raptors. My only connection to the Raptors is that I used to wear their merch when I was like six, because in Nova Scotia you just buy your clothes at Frenchies. It's like the secondhand store, and a lot of it's Raptors merch. <laughs> so yeah, uh, we're we're thinking with. In the spirit of the NBA Finals and, you know, dunk nationalism bringing us, bringing us to this point, uh, we went back in the Netflix archives, and I've wanted to watch uh, High Flying Burb for uh, a little while now, and Abdul, this is technically the third time we've seen like it Like second and a half, because I think I watched the end with you like five minutes ago. Yeah, um, yeah so like, you know, uh, huge thing, Toronto making it to the finals, first time in the franchise history. It's been a long road for us to get there. Like, I find that, like, usually my my relationship to basketball is I'll, like, jump on um, for three years, jump off for, like, two years, jump back on for three years. So, like, um, I was, like, not following basketball right before I moved to Edmonton, like, for a while. And then the the day I moved into Edmonton, I'm like, oh, fuck, the slack-jawed yokel morons of the state only know two things, oil and sports. So I guess I have to start following sports. I tried following the Oilers. Very disappointing. Gave up after a day. Um, Fair. I'm just like, oh, well, I know basketball because I love basketball. Let's go back to basketball. And for the last three years, diehard Raptors fan. Um, very exciting. 
Um, Do we want to just talk about like basketball as an abstract for a second? Absolutely. <clears throat> Would you like to start us yeah, off? So yeah. uh, I think uh, even before we get into the context of this movie, uh, it's very interesting. Like as an outside observer, how kind of like the racial politics of this sport play out. Like it seems to be a game that is like, you know, it's all of the money almost all of the money is going to the white owners um, and the black at well, the predominantly black athletes do get sizable amounts of money. However, they're in this job for a very short amount of time. A lot of that money comes from like marketing deals that they do um, not from like actual contracts. Sometimes like, I feel like it depends on the teams. Again, I'm not a super informed person talking about basketball. Uh, you need to riff for a second. I don't know where my jewel is and this is very scary. <laughs> All right, folks, so you're going to be with Evan for a little bit. Uh, Abdul wants me to talk about basketball, and I guess I will. Um, So I started watching the Raptors a little while ago. Uh, It was like the first game against Golden State that they were playing. It was a very fun watch. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I used to watch hockey when I was growing up. It was like, ooh, it's a fast sport. You know, I kind of understand the teams. Um, But I feel like with basketball, it's a very, like, it's a very, uh, like, easy to understand story right from the beginning. I mean... It's all of Canada, right? Imbued in this one team. If you don't like basketball, you're a racist. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to throw that out there right now. Like, I hate this thing of like, okay, hot take. Yeah. Hockey is a stupid fucking boring sport to watch, and I don't think anyone actually enjoys watching it. It's just people <laughs> grinding up against walls trying to get this, like, stupid black puck out. And, like, I don't think anyone really knows what they're doing. If it was played on, like anything other than ice no one would fucking watch it and i i proved this with field hockey (laughs) um very similar sport has hockey in the name um but yeah like basketball like anyone who says oh that's 10 minutes of game or the only thing that matters go fuck yourself um like it's a game about like ultimately it's a game about showmanship it has like a lot of like you know class relationships to you know, well, I mean, it's primarily like a lower income group of people, especially in America, who play um, basketball, much like soccer. The cost of entry is like exceptionally low. And I mean that in like a very good way. Yeah. Like, I feel like hockey is predominantly a sport for like people. Well, people have to sacrifice a lot to play it because the equipment is so much and you have to pay for travel. Um, but yeah, I feel like in that sense, there are sports that are a bit more proletarian, if you will, basketball, soccer, or football, if you want footy. I have a, um, and this is the other thing that pissed me off, is like the the idea that like gun culture follows basketball or something like that, you know, Mm. like people getting shot for their fucking Jordans, which I'm sure has happened once or twice upon a time, but like, how much does a pair of Jordans cost? Like 300, 400 bucks max, you know what I mean? Like for a, a nice rare pair. Yeah, I'd say the real issues there are probably, uh, you know, gun ownership, uh, inequality. Crippling and, uh, poverty, lack of reparations. Yeah, just uh, the horrifying racist design of cities, uh, you know, systemic racism. Maybe it wasn't the Jordans. But one of my coworkers literally spent, like, something like $2,000 on new um, hockey pads for his large sons. You know what I mean? I'm just like... Brendan and Brendan. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, basically, like I'm not gonna say their names because that would give it <laughs> let's, away. Let's dox but... some teen hockey players. <laughs> let's, let's dox my like coworkers' children. Um, Being on the left means uh, taking 
taking a risk. It's the most left thing you can do. Um, commit crimes, but the crimes aren't like, you know, like I stole from the rich and gave to the poor. It was like, no, I made death threats against a 15 year old living in Red Deer, Alberta. I guess Jake and Jock. You know what I mean? Like, um, but it's just like the fact that you can afford this and, and afford to send your kid to like fucking goalie camp. You know what I mean? Like, you know what? There's only one camp in uh, in basketball, no. and that's the camp of the streets. <laughs> oh, okay. I was going to call it the ghetto university, like in the Kanye West long, right? Oh, but yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, you thought I was going to go concentration camp. Yeah, I did. I did. I wouldn't be surprised if you did. Uh, I thought you were going to say there's only one camp that people who play hockey are going to go to. It wouldn't be out of character. Um, <laughs> but yeah, basketball, it's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, I'm new to kind of like the dynamics of it. Um, I feel like to some extent I am a bit of a class trader because there is one sport that i am following perhaps the most elite sport in the world formula one where there are 20 participants on the planet um in terms of like league sports they're very similar um in terms of how many people actually play them and uh well i guess you can't play f1 in an amateur setting but you get what i mean like <laughs> go-karting who, yeah who aspire to get there and how many people actually get in like basketball mm. has the highest barrier to entry because there's such a small number of players on each team right yeah um which is like to the point where people are actually uh scouting like 13 14 year olds like when you enter junior high if you're like a notable basketball player you'll probably have a highlight reel online coaches are already looking at you um which is insane to think about right it like presents such opportunity yeah, and before we were doing this, we were watching the trailer for this Netflix uh, movie. I think it's a movie amateur. Um, and they do this thing that I've... It's a trope that I've seen repeated in a lot of stuff where there's this high school or middle school teacher who needs to tell... He's a white guy, typically, who needs to tell his black students that the odds of getting in the NBA are, like, very short. And it's like, thanks, like, Martin. Like, I'm sure your students know that. But, like, I think being in the NBA, like, serves as, like a pretty powerful dream to escape just like the crushing like inequality of late capitalist America. Like, and it does kind of represent this like, you know, ideal form of labor, right? Like if you have this talent that you've nurtured for a long time and you can put it to use, like you should be able to like, you know, earn the fruits of that labor. Right. I mean, in the NBA, it's like you get millions of dollars for like playing basketball. Like maybe it's a little bit out of whack, but like, and it's so, it's so rare that opportunity to like follow your passion to be successful. And like, there is this kind of, yeah, there is an ideal form of it. There's nothing for that. Like podcasters. It's like, oh, are you going to be Mark Marin or the pod safe America guys? No, we are. We're going to be crooked media one day. Yeah. <laughs> That's we're, it's we're amateur, but for podcasting, it's like yeah. the sports movie of like how many, like uh, <laughs> how many fucking dog whistles can we say before and escape cancellation before we blow up? Um, we're the crooked media farm team. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, it reminds me a lot of like my favorite documentary of all time is a documentary called um, Hoop Dreams, mm. which is like a three hour documentary about basketball, right? Like two basketball players who they follow for, I think it was something like three years. They shot like six and a half thousand um, hours of like 16 millimeter film and then turned it into this massive documentary about like people in poverty trying to get into the sport. Um, and it's just, you know, I mean, like watching that, and, like the circumstances people get through and what they actually put on, 
you know, basketball as an idea is like a, a legitimately heart wrenching thing to witness. I also think of um another heart wrenching film like Mike, mm. um, which really presents, you know, the trials and tribulations of being a little bow wow in a doggy dog world. Okay. Um have you not seen like Mike? No. Oh fuck <laughs> that, that, that the joke doesn't land. No, one audience member's it's laughing and good for them. It's probably me. Um <laughs> I'm checking the audio back. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um it's a it's a kids movie where a Lil Bow Wow, the rapper who now goes by just Bow Wow, <laughs> he's no yeah. longer Lil. Big Bow Wow. Uh, Big Bow Wow. I think yeah. I've seen this. Like when um, I was very young. Yeah, where he gets into the NBA as like a child because he's like he has the uh, magic uh, basketball shoes or whatever, hmm. um, or Airbud. <laughs> um, seen Airbud. <laughs> um, but yeah, like there's just something about basketball, um, like the way that friendships develop on off the court, the sort of the swagger of the sport itself, the fact that like so much of it is caught up in like a racial history. For example, like the history of dunking, <laughs> hmm. um, like yeah. literally dunking, not yeeting on your you know Twitter enemies. Um, is uh, is like coded in like black people becoming dominant in the sport and then the league banning it right for a right. long time to to sort of cut them out in some way. Um, and like when you watch it, it's such like a tempo driven game, like you can feel the shifts in energy. All it takes is one lucky shot for a team to come back. Yeah, like it's it's so based in like how you lose and gain concentration. But now we're going to talk about the game above the game as per the poster for uh, High Flying Burb. Um, High Flying Burb. <laughs> so, I mean, let's just assume you've seen the movie. Like, I don't want to go over the recap, but it's about a sports agent who, uh, during a fictional NBA lockout, um, basically negotiates a better deal for the team by undergoing all sorts of awesome machinations and, like, playing the... Uh, the union against the owners and back and forth until he reaches some sort of amazing deal. This is probably the episode I'm most qualified to talk on as, um, this is the primo. So I can say it as someone who works for a labor union, <laughs> still not naming that fucking place, but yeah, keep it a fucking secret. premium subscribers. Um, you, this actually, this episode is so exclusive. Uh, we're only putting it on our OnlyFans account. So yeah, thank we're, you for subscribing. We're actually, it's only for people who have subscribed to our premium Snapchat. Yeah, we're going to be showing our titties here pretty soon. Oh. Um, sex work is valid labor. Yep. Um, yeah, so I mean, like, let's just go into this film's conception of labor. Like, um, I don't know, did speak, did ring truthfully to you? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you need to be uh, a basketball fan to, like, appreciate this movie. It Well, at one point, it's very well made. Uh, quick review, really liked it. Uh, I think it's a very strong film, very well written. Uh, the writer of it was one of the writers of Moonlight. So there you go. The movie does this really interesting thing where it intercuts its segments with, like, real interviews with, like, actual NBA players. I feel like that was the intent of the thing they don't like show their names but they talk about their experience like getting drafted or like the things they were thinking about in their first year like are they going to get rookie of the year and like all the things that are going on in the mind of like a new player in the nba like who's going to be in their circle of friends and all this other stuff and like the things that are like on the minds of like nba players are like also very much driven by like 
like how good their contracts are going to be right like who's going to be drawn to them because of the money they're getting in their contracts and a lot of this movie like yeah it centers on like the agents the people in like back rooms like doing deals like for their players so i think that's really interesting uh just like the notion of like yeah this like very unstable labor market (laughs) that uh they're in but also there's this notion like what you were talking about earlier that like the pool of like potential players is massive right because like basketball is a game enjoyed by many people but just like the competition of getting through the front door is unbelievable it's you have a better chance of winning the lottery in america than joining the nba like that is an absolute fact and then staying there like what we see here requires like a lot of you know deft that um, you know, I don't know if a players association on its own can probably give them. That's why they need managers and agents and this entire apparatus in order to maintain their status. But yeah, with the notion of like the lockout, I think it's really interesting because you have these players who are like very talented at like a handful of skills, right? That they can't use in really any other area, right? I mean, we see this in like tons of different occupations, right? It's why you have so many like uh, former NFL players being used car dealers, right? Yeah, or get take or getting taken in into like uh, like pyramid schemes. Like uh, there's a there's a trend of people who or are, fighting dogs <laughs> or fighting dogs. Like once you leave these sports, right? It's like wow, you can't do like any other jobs besides for things that like rely on your notoriety. So I think that in like ending the lockout um, in the way that it is ended in this movie, like there's this like appreciation that like the labor of the workers in this industry is like what keeps it going. Right. And like leveraging that in like a unique way in order to bring about change was a really neat thing to see in a sports movie. And sort of speaking from the perspective of like someone who has worked and continues to work in a labor environment. It's really funny because, like, I always have this um, conversation when I'm outside smoking with, like, the lawyers at my workplace who, like, represent members in, like, disputes and stuff like that. I'm like, you could join the NHL Players Association and, like, have grievance meetings for, like, some guy, like, um, body-checked someone badly, got, you know, suspended for three games and filed a grievance about it, right? Um, But it's... It's interesting because, like, the last NBA lockout did end in such a dramatic fashion as this movie, not at all akin to what this movie describes, but, like, it ended with the Players Union temporarily dissolving so that the players could all file antitrust lawsuits Mm. against um, against the league and their GMs that brought everyone back to bargaining table. Well, I suppose for context, Abdul, um, why don't you explain kind of how this uh, how this lockout ends up uh, being resolved uh, kind of by Ray a little bit like he starts pushing the dominoes in a certain direction. Basically, Ray leverages this idea that the game will continue whether or not um, players uh, are actually being paid by the league or not. And they're circumventing all sorts of. um like league rules in order to have pickup games that aren't being filmed, but that people play top dollar to go to ideally going to like a competitor model. Right. And, um, or some kind of streaming service. Yeah. And the league, uh, the league doesn't like that. It forces their hand. They come back to the table. They bargain. The idea is that the league is holding out because they're trying to get better deal with the network said they can give the players a pittance of a raise, but leverage more money for themselves because the league is beholden to the network, which makes the most money out of all of this. Right. Yeah, and I really like this notion of, like, 
like the inklings of like political change start with like some kind of new imagination or like thinking beyond the structures that we have right now like i mean it's not incredibly dramatic but like for the world of world of sport it is right like thinking beyond like this like current league and ray's thinking like what if we have something like boxing or like ufc right like with like players as almost like independent agents right who are like organizing themselves in like these unique matchups and like just that idea alone has power like it has currency enough to like move things it's actually a current and pressing issue in ncaa ball where um players work uh arguably twice as hard as they work in the nba for no money right but the ncaa and the affiliated universities are making so much fucking money off of them and they can sign away rights to the image. They can do all sorts of shit to the players. The players just sort of have to grin and bear it until they maybe get drafted into the NBA, right? And one of the things that talent does not mean you will get into the NBA. Like one of the, you know, best players on the Raptors right now, Marcus Gasol, was never drafted. He was signed by the Raptors as a rookie free agent. Like he completely missed out on the draft, hmm. which is an he is legitimately one of the best players in the NBA right now, right? Like, the Raptors, yeah, like, well, the whole fucking team is absolutely incredible. Please watch the NBA Finals. But, like, um, and stuff like that. So it's just, like, the amount of grind it takes to get there, and then once you're there, like, one injury can put you out, right? Mm. You might get a sponsorship deal. You might not. Um, like, and if you're a rookie, you're not actually making that much money with respect to how, and they touch on that in the movie as well, eh? With the, uh, apartment scene. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting because we conceptualize sport as like this place was just pure competition, right? Like depending on the ability of like each athlete, you know, one of them is going to come out on top and like for a large extent it is, but like to, we need to also like take this critical lens of like thinking, thinking about you know the haves and the have-nots in this industry like for me watching formula one like there's this team uh williams that had a driver lance stroll on it he was on the team exclusively because his canadian billionaire father lawrence stroll was financing the team and then once he didn't like what that team was doing his son's now driving for racing point a team which he is bankrolling and like they're completely transparent about it it's like yeah i'm on this team because my dad runs it right and in formula one i'm assuming very much like basketball although basketball is like a very physical sport like there's so much that like takes a player to be in the place where like they can perform at top level in formula one you know you have your engineers and like your race strategists and like the racing conditions and the competition that you have to worry about right it's not just like this one-to-one uh competitive thing so i think that introducing like you know, like better labor practices in this area where competition is like the highest value um, is tricky. Um, And I really like the way that uh, they did it in this movie. And that's also something like very specifically to basketball is they have um, a weirdly militant union. (laughs) Mm. You know I mean? Like noted union boss, LeBron James, and I guess basketball player as well. um, Who's the current head of the NBPA you know, is actually quite a hard ass when it comes to negotiations. Granted, he has the most to gain or lose from these negotiations. Yeah. Um, but then you also see sort of basketball working um, in sort of anti-worker ways, right? For example, like in basketball contract negotiations, there's the Derrick Rose rule, which is one of the reasons that the game is played at such an interesting level right now where a team gets, I believe, every 
certain amount of time gets to waive one player off the salary cap entirely, hmm. which is why you have these like superstars who are paid like four to five times more than what they're like. I think Derek Rose, who the rules named after was signed at like 30% of what the full salary cap would have been. Jesus, which is insane to think about. Like that's how LeBron James inked like a, was it 80 or 180? It was a massive deal to sign with the Lakers, right? Million um, <clears throat> and stuff like that. So there's like, you know, there's issues within basketball too. But at the same time, like these players actually work hard and they they fight quite hard too, right? And I think it's a lot of these players do come from lower income backgrounds. They come out of, um, you know, like a, yeah, they come out of like rough and tumble opportunities because they can't buy their way through life, right? Um, and I think that actually shows itself in labor issues. Like when we talk about labor happening from the or labor organizing happening from the bottom up, uh, basketball is actually like a very good example of that, right? So thinking another about uh, kind of this like really important message that the movie uh, drives home, particularly. Um, at its ending is kind of like the racial politics of uh, like the NBA um, of the labor issues that they're encountering. Um, so I didn't know who this character was who showed up uh, later in the film. He's like a famous sports writer, but he writes this book that Ray, uh, the, Harry Edwards. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that Ray takes as his Bible that he gives to Derek, like his, uh, his, the guy that he's the agent for and it's this book about the exploitation of black athletes. And I think the book is literally titled The Revolt of Black Athletes. Um, so it provides this, like, really interesting frame outside of just, like, class alone for thinking about basketball. Because obviously, like, there is an ownership class to a lot of this, which is predominantly white. Like, I'm sure there are, like, people of color there. But, like, in, at least in the text of the film, most of the people that we see, um, like, with a lot of power are white men. Um, and a lot of the athletes who are kind of, uh, you know, at the, at the whims of these people are like young black men. So, um, there's a, there's a proud tradition of like activism within like black athleticism. Um, Um, that writer actually is currently hired as an advisor to Colin Kaepernick. Oh, cool. Um, and so like, yeah, like that's, uh, one of the things is, um, Harry Edwards wrote this book called revolt of the black athlete, where he basically talked about, um, black athleticism as a means to racial liberation. Um, I've read a cliff notes of the book. Uh, I brushed up on it for this episode, but like, yeah, essentially it's saying that like where black people can exceed and where it can send a strong message for black athleticism is, is in the realm of sport. Right. Um, and you see this with like black power salutes at the Olympics. You see this with like kneeling for the flag. It is, um, like sport is such a colonized process and such a like dominated by whites process Mm -hmm. that any sort of stepping outside the boundary is considered like extremely crucial and important. Right. Like even in Canada and hockey, um, Jerome McGinley, right. One of the first black, uh, hockey players. I remember this, like in Toronto, Ty Domi, who's a, a piece of shit, by the way. Yeah. Um, but it was like a big thing for, for, uh, for me and my family growing up. Like we, watch the Leafs because Ty Domi played for the Leafs and he was, he was a Brown man. Right. Um, but now we're starting to see like LeBron step more into the field of like, you know, um, activism and, and sort of combining sports and racial justice politics. Kaepernick, obviously, 
um, many players now kneel or at the very least, like keep their head down or, you know, when the, when the anthem is on stuff like that. And I think that that has ignited a brand new conversation, in American sport to the point where there's a new racist NFL league starting the XFL coming back. Right. And stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, speaking to the sport that I love formula one, uh, the world champion and potentially one of the greatest formula one drivers of all time. Lewis Hamilton is a black man. Um, and he has like a prominent, like Maya Angelou tattoo. Um, and he, he talks kind of lightly about kind of like racial justice, like, and as like, you know, the most prominent, uh, athlete in that sport in the world out of you know, 19 other drivers. Uh, I think it's really, uh, important to see. Um, I think with Lewis Hamilton, it's, it's interesting. Cause like he comes from a very privileged background. Like he comes from extreme wealth. Mm-hmm. But um, I I assume in Formula One, like I knew a kid. Fuck this! I haven't thought about this person in so long. His name was Neilan. <laughs> he was a brown guy. He did not kneel for the anthem. His oh name was God. just Neilan. Um, but he was a he was a a go kart driver on the way to um, on the way to, like going pro, right? Yeah. And I went to. Okay, I'm giving away my own class background here. Okay. I went to, uh, for a time, uh, a very expensive private school in the richest city in the country. Okay. <laughs> um, so, I mean, fuck me. I'll be first <laughs> to the guillotine, I'm sure. Um, uh, yeah, and so it's like, um, you know, I remember with him, too, like, he he was, like, this very like Brown sort of, uh, we call him fresh off the boats, you know what I mean? Like Sri Lankan immigrant who just happened to be really good at go-karting, right? And he was always giving away PSPs because that's what he'd win in the races. They wouldn't obviously pay him because he was like 14, 15. Mm. Um, But, I mean, he spoke pretty aggressively of like light racial justice topics that at that time I had no sort of broader conception of. And he's like... Yeah, you know, they just keep calling me names when I'm doing the sport. Like, they just keep calling me names and in the pit and, like, prepping. And, like, I really hate the other drivers. And I was like, I didn't really get it. And I'm like, you know, that must have been what happened to Lewis Hamilton. Like, wealth is immaterial to the color of your skin in this case, right? There will always be a reason to sort of fuck you over because you're a black person encroaching into, like, white territory. Yeah. Um, which is how basketball was for a time, right? When black people started playing basketball. And even uh, looking a bit closer to home for me, um, Sidney Crosby, uh, one of Canada's most prominent racists, um, he was like, clearly, like, he fucking hated uh, P.K. Subban. Um, and he's from Coal Harbor, Nova Scotia, a city which, uh, not a city, a town, which famously had uh, a race fight at its high school once. Like, it's but I feel like in Canada we it was like we let it slide, right? We're just like, oh, you know, him and PK, they must have some kind of rivalry. And it's like, no, I'm from Nova Scotia. I know why he probably doesn't like PK Subban. So like we can say that like, yeah, like these players are millionaires and everything else, but like just the extent of racism that like athletes of color, like indigenous like men playing hockey in like small Alberta towns or like any town on the prairies, like black athletes having like bananas thrown at them on a hockey rink like that shit's awful and it's here and it happens every day friend of the pod and uh enemy of canadian media nora loretto um 
<clears throat> so if you didn't know this, uh, you probably do. But for our American listeners, like, um, you know, there was a, a tragedy um, that happened. Uh, was it last year or the year before, Evan? Uh, I think it was last year, right? Last year. Okay, yeah. Um, where a hockey team uh, on a bus, the Humboldt Broncos, got collided with by a by a truck at an uncontrolled intersection in Saskatchewan and like uh, all but four of the players died, right? Mm -hmm. Every player, the coaches, everyone on the hockey bus was white. And she made a tweet saying what happened is a tragedy, but the whiteness, the youthfulness, the maleness of this tragedy is um, like gives me pause, right? Because it raised like a record amount on GoFundMe. It was like a huge Canadian story. Even now people still wear, have like Humboldt strong bumper stickers and stuff. And um, she got fucking ripped to shreds over that like like only she got blacklisted by a bunch of publications she's still getting death threats like every day a year later about this um and like people are like how could you be so insensitive to this tragedy it's just children dying but like honestly i feel like if it was a bus full of indigenous kids like there would have been an outcry i don't think that that's a a question yeah and there wouldn't be a gofundme yeah, exactly. Like the GoFundMe would have raised a, a tenth of what it actually raised because the death of of racialized of, of like indigenous people or racialized people is an inevitability. Whereas the death of like white normalcy is shocking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's like stuff like that where it's like we we tend to see these sports in you know these very specific ways. Like when you think hockey, you think like young white men getting on you know, getting onto a court and like playing very intensely. And, um, you don't think about like the, the culture that exists in the locker room, the sort of inherent toxicity of those environments, like the way the coaches treat people. Right. We think of basketball. We tend to think of basketball in very racialized terms. We tend to think of it in terms of like, you know, struggling black athletes trying to make it. We tend to see it as like a sport that's, we tend to have a less intellectual relationship with the sport, which is why I think people say that like the only time that matters in basketball is like the last 10 minutes or like, you know, basketball is really boring to watch because of this and this and this. And it's like, just fucking admit it. Just fucking admit that you think black people are stupid. Yeah. You know I mean, yeah. Like just admit to being a racist and like, especially in Canada, like sport predominantly hockey plays like a massive role in soft power, both here and internationally. Um, there are international agreements made or broken based on sport sometimes. Um, you know, there's billions of dollars in it. Uh, it's controlled by a small group of billionaires. Daryl Cates, get better soon, buddy. He's dying of a terminal illness. The Oilers are going to be run Rest by... in peace. Yeah, they're going to be run by some <clears throat> other, you know, incomprehensibly wealthy person. Hope he fucking suffers while he dies. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like, with the Humboldt Broncos, like, obviously it's a tragedy. Like, no one's disputing that. It's going to leave, like, you know, a terrible hole in the lives of these families. And also, like, we as a state choose to ignore, like, the violence that happens every day to mostly indigenous communities. Um, you know, indigenous men and women who, you know, play these sports, like, no one gives a shit when this happens. Like black men, when they get shit thrown at them when they're playing hockey, no one or soccer no for that matter, right? In the yeah. in the in Europe, there's a huge thing where like certain athletes have a really hard time going to European soccer, certain European soccer stadiums, especially in Eastern Europe, because of the amount of racism they have to endure. Right? You see this in South America with 
indigenous players taking part in like, you know, sort of white dominated leagues. And you can see no better example of this than the Humboldt crash. Cause the driver of the truck um, and the owner of the trucking company were both, um, I were both Sikh people. Right. And uh, at least one of them got like a life sentence in prison. Um, and the amount of like racial hatred that came out of that, you know, yeah. anti-immigrant rhetoric was insane, but you know what? And, Sure, you know, but they are ultimately as much as Humboldt is a victim of of these people's negligence. Um, they're also a victim of the culture of trucking companies, the nature of overwork, the fact that Saskatchewan has the most roads per capita of any province in the country, and the least amount of infrastructure dedicated to road safety or budget. Like no one from the Saskatchewan Department of Transportation got got dragged for this right no one got fired no one on institutional level lost their jobs because they are completely protected by you know both uh paradigms of political power and also paradigms of whiteness you know what i mean and like not to say that like people can't be sad about multiple things and this isn't an argument for like being like selective yeah, we're not being outraged. like fuck those kids <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah no but like even in like the same year there was like a horrifying shooting at a quebec quebec mosque with like a clear cause right like online radicalization from like far right uh, voices like especially on twitter like people like ben shapiro and you barely hear about it or if you do hear about it um so recently michael cooper an mp he was absolutely shocked that uh, a Muslim man would bring up the fact that Ben Shapiro and other conservatives activated a young man to massacre Muslim people in Quebec. A member of parliament, that's our version of member of Congress, for those of you yeah. wondering what an MP is. Yeah, so a representative on the federal level. And he, he was chastised for it. He's not kicked out of the party, but he won't be sitting on the Justice Committee. And like the way that race plays into uh, the kinds of violence that we see or the kinds of like labor uh, issues that like we either care about or we don't care about is very telling. I think that um, when athletes in the States wear their politics on their sleeve, if they're white, it's good. Like uh, who's the fucking like praying football guy. Oh, uh, he's uh, not very fuck, good uh, on the New England Patriots. Like Tom Brady? No, uh, no, but Tom the Brady. The best player in the NFL? No, not Tom Brady. The, the other guy. Yeah, but like um, the, the politics of like white athletes are uh, non-controversial, right? But as soon as like a black athlete breaks the kayfabe um, of what's going on, right? That we're like we're just all having a good time and we're playing for the passion of it. Like those things can be true, and we can also improve society somewhat. But you know, there's this incredible like white outrage, right? Like I've I almost never see people of color getting frustrated about someone like Colin Kaepernick. I'm sure they're out there. But I don't really see them. It's mostly white people burning his jersey. I mean, this happened a little while ago now. But but people are still mad. You know what I mean? Like, and I mean, like, Cape is also a victim of capitalism in as much as like he's yeah. he's doing his best to make it work for him. Like but, the only you know. yeah, like the only way he was surviving uh, basically was like from that Nike deal that like he had to keep quiet for a long time. Yeah, and I mean, like uh, the Quebec mosque shooting in particular is like especially frustrating for me because it's like. Every year, every fucking white feminist I know remembers Polytechnique. You know what I mean? Which was, um, for, again, our American listeners, like Polytechnique was a horrific, and I don't want to like lighten this at all, like a horrific massacre where sort of the OG incel in the 60s or 70s uh, murdered 14 women at an engineering college in Montreal. Yeah. Right? Um, because he, he hated women. He hated uh, feminists. And like... um. 
the you know Quebec City shooting seems to have receded. Something happened less than two years ago has receded from cultural memory in a way that like polytechnique has not right 40 years later. And that really frustrates me because it, it shows the sort of like paradigms of like whiteness as it relates to everything else. Like, you know, black and Brown women are at a much higher risk of like domestic abuse, murder, sexual violence, actual violence, you know, assault. Um, they tend to be the, the groups, the demographics that sort of slot into outside sex work, which is much more risky, right and stuff like that but they're so forgotten in these conversations and you know that is something that's very applicable to the world of sport as well right like that's something where um we tend to forget about sort of racialized dynamics and hierarchies of power and uh preordained wealth going into the sport and what that does to people and how it relates to people right like so many of these athletes especially in the nfl just piss away their wealth because they're not they don't know, you know, you were never taught how to handle money. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like you're just given a huge check told to get like, you know, um, what's that thing that happens when you bang your head too much? Uh, CTE. Yeah. You get CTE. You're like risk, your survival chance after leaving the NFL is less than 10 years. You don't have a pension. You sell some car dealerships, piss away everything because it's the only money you'll ever have. Um, and then you die. Right. And people forget about you. Like you're literally just a body that's there to make money for people and bosses don't give a shit. As Laura said on this podcast uh, earlier, you might love your work, but your work doesn't love you. I'm not even sure how many people love the game. You know what I mean? I don't mm. mean that in a denigrating way. Like lots of players, um, especially when the barrier to entry is like a little looser, like in the NFL, right? I'm sure they just do it because it's, they've been told it's the only opportunity they'll ever have. Right. Like, you're not rich enough to get into an Ivy League. You're not smart enough to make that, like, 5%, um, you know, affirmative action cut or whatever, right? So what do you have? You have football. Um, And that's why I always get, like, super frustrated whenever people are like, oh, well, football players or sports players and universities are treated so much better. Like, their teachers are told to just pass them with, like, a 51% or whatever they need to, to stay playing or whatever. And it's like... Well, so what? Yeah, and like, fuck you. Yeah, and also they're like working far harder and like have so many more time commitments than you do. Like, than you can imagine. Like, you don't have to go to like all the practice, the games, waking up extremely early, going to the gym. Like, it's an incredibly difficult life. Like, I'm friends with like a few student athletes, right? Who are like, you know, playing semi professionally and it grueling right like going to school is difficult enough it's like oh i'm taking five classes like yeah that is difficult and it can be like a burden on your mental health but just like the amount of time and having almost no time to yourself right just pursuing this one dream and then ultimately you know being in this career for a handful of years and you know either leaving it because of some kind of debilitating injury or you're just being outpaced by the younger competition at that point like it's it's an accelerated version of, you know, the labor market that we see everywhere else. And the cruelty of the sport, I think, is is extremely demonstrated in the way that, like, these players are treated when they go pro, right? Um, trades. Like, the big one with the Raptors is that they had a player named uh, DeMar Derozan, right? Who is the uh, incredible player. He and Kyle Lowry, who's still on the Raptors, um, incredible friendship they were like one of the best like backcourt duos in the nba like incredible defensive power and derozan was traded away for a one-year free agent you know Kawhi leonard who's 
Um, by all accounts, like a very nice guy, uh, perhaps the most talented player in um, what you call it in his conference, you know, if not uh, one of the most talented in the league. Um, but just the fact that like DeRozan, who, you know, was so um, committed to the Raptors and the city and the team, you know, who had given them basically everything for years and years and years, was just traded away for a one-time play at the finals, right? And like traded away from from what every anecdote will say, it was also one of his best friends, right? And Kyle and Kyle Lowry, I think, says so much about, um, you know, the sport and like the cruelty of that sport. Like you're just bodies, you're just a meat. Like, um, I understand the political utility of sports, and I don't denigrate that. But like, mm-hmm. ultimately, what you're cheering for is a uniform, not the people in the uniform, right? You're cheering for some sort of civic institution. Uh, oftentimes a national institution and you can make it work for you. Like, you know, LFC does in the UK or many other like left wing football clubs or a lot of basketball fandom. Right. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's like this enormous capitalist enterprise that bears scrutiny. And I think Steven Soderbergh really sort of digs into that in like a very neat way. I mean, I don't like his conception of agents though. I will say that. I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit as like sort of a benevolent force. Okay, let's hit pause on this. I gotta take a piss. So I'm uh, unpausing the podcast just to describe uh, the current state we are in. Um, Our co-host, Evan, has been uh, in the washroom now for about 21 minutes. Uh, We did go to Popeye's for dinner, um, and I believe this is playing a factor, but uh, I guess I am am the, the, the Kino Laster now. Um... I am the final Kino, uh, the end boss of the podcast, if you will, and um, uh, fucking cancel me. I've been waiting for months, if not years, to be to be canceled, and um, as I'm the last one left, come come do it. You're only going to cancel a man. Um, oh, wait, no, Evan has returned. Uh, like Jesus, he has returned. Hello. Um, so we were talking about sports agents. Yes, we were. So I think in this, I'm feeling very satisfied after a horrific bathroom experience. Just for the, just for the listener, I can, I can hear that post uh, shit orgasm sound in your voice. It's a mix um, of like feeling very satisfied, but also knowing that sooner or later it's going to come back, and I'm not looking forward to that. Uh, don't don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. Exactly. So uh, the agents in this movie, I see. <laughs> I can just picture Laura listening to this and being like, "This is why you can't have podcasts with only men." Yeah, uh, we're very toxic. So I think the agents in this movie they kind of serve the purpose, um, or they kind of like they're a stand-in for like any kind of revolutionary movement that tries to succeed needs to gain like some kind of support from like the petite bourgeois or like elites in society. Um, and I feel like in, in a disappointing way, like the players themselves aren't really seen as like the ones like driving the change in the league. Right. It's like the agents themselves making these decisions, um, which are ultimately like in their own class interests. I don't think it's a terribly like benevolent uh, choice that they're making. I mean, for Ray, it might be, but again, that's like his character in the movie, probably not indicative of sports agents generally. <laughs> yeah. 
Do you think that uh, agents would have agreed with Kaepernick's decision to kneel, for example? No, of course not. And yeah, I mean, like, not for nothing. The film and Steven Soderbergh, um, very closet leftist. Uh, by the way, I just I just cleaned the bathroom because Megan's coming back. You didn't you didn't uh, like undo eight hours of work in there, no. did you? Okay, cool. <laughs> oh my um, god! Yeah. No, I shit on the floor. <laughs> That's what I did. I shit all over your nice clean floor to welcome Megan okay, back. Okay, so just to <laughs> just to uh, give you some context, why I'm so nervous, Evan. Um, Merlin, because I have new uh, cat litter mats. I catch cat litter better. Was so offended by these mats that when I after I finished cleaning the house and put out the new mats, he did shit on the floor. And it was a wet, disgusting shit. Like, it took me <laughs> another 30 minutes to clean my cat's, like, diuretic, moist, you know, mount. Oh, <laughs> I, I see a listener eating during this and just taking their headphones out and be like, this is too much and deleting their Patreon. So if you do that, I understand, but... Fuck, that's uh, rough. Uh, um, no. Oh, what do you think about sports agents? What do you think about sports um, agents? I think that all agents are, as someone who is currently looking for an agent, they're all wonderful people and would 100% be my ride or die. Uh, so what you're saying is, ow, all agents are wonderful? Yes, exactly. Um, uh, all agents are beautiful, actually, and and very good at. Bi- all agents are business. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think. Well, I mean, real agents would donate to the Patreon because none of them have. Um, yeah, yeah uh, agents are fucking dog shit. They're exploitative. Their only job is the only reason they exist um, is to get like you know the maximum deal so they can make something for themselves. That's capitalism, baby. But like. Um, you know, this film presents a, a mom who's her son's agent, right? Who's her son's manager. Yeah. Um, who's, like, very protective of her son, very cunning. And, like, she completely outsteps the agent, the actual agents to any given opportunity. I think that's very telling. Is, like, she's there. Uh, she's also very wealthy, right? But, like, she's there to make sure her son doesn't get fucked over. And she says, you know, you, you old white men and young hoteps, you're all the same. You just want you just want to make money off like my son's body, which is also what she's doing, but albeit with like, I would argue marginally better intentions. Yeah. Like ultimately they're not the players, right? They're not the people who are like, I mean, their bottom lines are getting impacted, right? Because like the predicament that uh, Ray is in at the beginning of the movie, his salary is not being paid. Right. And he's like, He's paying his uh his clients based on this like rainy day fund that he's taken from his commission. So he has in- his interests to look out. Like he's his goal at the end of the movie, like the one to one thing is like becoming more powerful at his own agency. Um, so while there is this notion of like you know bettering the conditions of like the players, which I'm sure he does care about, right? Like you get into this like. You know, for one reason or another, he probably cares about the people he works for. But, I mean, he's looking out for number one. Yeah, like, if there's anything unrealistic about this movie, it's the fact that the agent is insanely benevolent, even though, like, there's conversation after conversation about he's just like one of the GMs, right? Like, one of the guys says, he's so smart, because in my situation, if I was in his situation, I would have done the same damn thing, right? I think that's the exact line. Yeah. Um... But like, let's uh, let's pivot away from this uh, conversation about agents and fecal matter to um, 
the fact that this film was shot on an iPhone, Steven Soderbergh, his second feature to be filmed on iPhone after uh, last year's Unsane. Um, very interesting that like a director of his caliber is, you know, kind of going so ham into iPhone cinema. He was the first uh, director to shoot on the digital red camera, which is like one of the premier cameras with which Hollywood films are shot. He shot uh, the Che trilogy back to back on a prototype red. Um, <clears throat> I think that's, it's an interesting thing that he, he picked this format that he likes it, but it's also incredible. He got so much latitude out of it. If that makes sense. Like, I don't know if you could tell it was an iPhone off the top, but yeah. So it's, it's very nice to see that this movie shot on an iPhone and like, you can tell like it's, it's got an interesting kind of like, like flattening of the frame a little bit. Like it's very wide. Um, and you, like you can tell like when the camera was on a tripod on a desk because like someone puts their hand down on it and then the camera shakes, um, which is kind of neat, but yeah, it gives it this like kind of realism, um, that like is unique to the format. It feels like you could have shot this movie, right. Which is like a nice feeling to have. And it's a very like intentional kind of shooting process, which I think is, so this is the thing, right? Um, iPhones and, uh, like the democratization of cinema in a lot of ways has made the, made it open so anyone can make a movie, but not everyone can make a movie well. <laughs> and I think that's where Steven Soderbergh excels is like, I'm going to shoot this on iPhone and it lowers my budget immensely. This and that, right. You can spend more on like the actors, the production design, you have more time to shoot flexibility for takes, but like you sort of have to pair it with intentional choices of which there are so many in this movie. Like every close up is beautifully defined. Every move is like staggeringly thought out. Every bit of like lighting is designed to like optimize that the limits of the iPhone, like as far as they can go and then some, right. And it's like, what's the barrier to entry now? It's the amount of thought and energy you're willing to put in a creative project, which I think is like very, like it's an interesting paradigm shift in movies. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So democratized in the sense that like anyone can theoretically shoot a film, yet you also need like the skill, you know, the talent in order to put this movie together. And also just the resources of getting like a crew together who can shoot that kind of a movie um, distribution. <laughs> like you still need to be in like, you know, some kind of, you know, bit more elite class like you can go out with your buddies and shoot a movie on an iPhone. It can probably be great, but you know, it's not going to be high flying bird. Yeah. I mean, like there's a great film called blue ruin that came out a couple of years ago that was yeah. shot for a budget of 30,000. Right. And the director has gone on to bigger and much better things. Mid green room with Patrick Stewart and Anton Yelchin the year after um, he's doing a film for Netflix right now. Uh, or it might've already come out. I'm trying to remember if I want, oh, fuck, we watched too many movies. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but like, um, yeah, like that is is very interesting because it's like yeah, with with thirty thousand dollars, like literally the cost of a new car, you could make a Hollywood level production if you had the will to do it. Um, but I think that sort of what's lost in this process is yes, sort of theoretical framework, understanding of film grammar, strong choices. Like ninety nine percent of the film is made before you roll a single frame of footage, and so many of the stuff that we see out there today that's shot on iPhone is just aesthetics. It's not intentional. It doesn't stick with you. It doesn't live with you in any like a uh, meaningful way. Right. Um, 
like, do you think someone without Steven Soderbergh's experience could make a film like this? Oh, absolutely not. Um, I think that um, the way that he like uses the format, uh, his editing choices, like the shot selection with an iPhone, I think a lot of them, like the movement that the camera makes, um, it's very particular to the kind of image um, that the iPhone can capture. Um, people can make a great movie with an iPhone. I mean, you know, a lot of people's first films are incredible, but like, you know, it hasn't come out yet. I'm excited to see it when it does. Um, and the guy who made uh, Blue Ruin, uh, his movie for Netflix has come out. He made Hold the Dark with right. uh, Jeffrey Wright. Um, and he also made uh, Green Room, which could be a fun uh, retro lefter. Yeah, knows? like the uh, Fuck Nazis uh, film fest we eventually do on Kino Lefter. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, like when it comes down to it, I think that the the most key thing to remember about a film like High Flying Bird, aside from it being probably like right on the forefront of a new wave of like extremely labor positive films that include stuff like um, Sorry to Bother You, right? Or uh, Ken Loach, like I, Daniel Blake, um, <clears throat> all three of which come from very different perspectives on a similar sort of idea of class struggle is that story is king right unsane not a great movie um but high flying bird is just filled with like incredibly rich characters and incredible that like that scene with the coach in the um union reps uh office you know what i mean where the union rep makes a reference to slavery and the coach says you know when you make a reference to slavery as it relates to athletes in my court you have to say the words and she's like it's my office he says i'm in the room my court say god loves you and all his black children or something like that right and yeah. just the way that is acted and designed and just to speak to like i i think some of the elements that make this movie really strong um or make any kind of movie like that wants to have some kind of like left critique in it that isn't a documentary just the craft of film needs to be there like the ideas are potent i like to see them but I would rather see a good film first and foremost, because, you know, I can make some shitty thing and, you know, it doesn't matter if the ideas are right. So Andre Holland stars in it um, uh, as Ray. Um, you saw him in Moonlight. He played Kevin. He was in Selma. Um, just incredible. Um, and one of my favorite actors uh, from Predator, Bill Duke, is in this Uh he plays Spence, uh, the coach who's in the movie. And Bill Duke, he's just an incredible presence whenever he's in a movie. Um, he was uh, he was in Mandy uh, last year. Uh, just a great presence. But yeah, what we were saying before the writing. Um, so uh, Terrell McCranny uh, is the writer of this. So he is credited on Moonlight. Um, I don't know if he wrote uh, the play that uh, Moonlight is based on. I think he did um, because a lot of this movie... The writing almost feels like it was meant for the stage um, and some of like it's, you know, it's construction, the amount of characters who are, you know, kind of in a room talking with each other. But the dialogue is king in this. Um, it's incredibly well written, uh, terrifically performed, like all the characters very well cast. Um, Zazie Beats is in it. Um, but yeah, it's it's incredibly well made, very well written. You know, it's a really strong uh, group of characters like I, it's 90 minutes like. This is a terrific movie on Netflix. One of the best things that's on Netflix, like, you know, that's like an original product. I th was it distributed originally by Netflix? I think so. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was made for Netflix. Yeah, like one of the only, like, some 
there's really good stuff on Netflix. Um, I mean, Abdul, I know you really like that time travel movie that came out. See you yesterday. Yeah, see you yesterday is amazing. Yeah, and uh, I mean, obviously, I really love Formula One: Drive to Survive. Like currently, that's my favorite thing that was originally produced on Netflix. But yeah, High Flying Bird, I give it a really strong recommendation. Um, you know, if you're interested in labor politics, I think there's a lot to really chew on there. Um, it's terrifically made. Watch it. Yeah, and I will listen to Derzazi beats at any time. <laughs> um, well, but Derzazi beats. Derzazi beats. Uh, I've been listening to. I listen to the latest Chapo, and I can't get mm. Der Funky beats out of my head. <laughs> it was like a lifestyle ethos. Um, I was in Germany when I was in high school. Um, I was too young to like party. But yeah, Berlin specifically has absolutely. extremely powerful Der Funky beats energy, and like people would approach me on the street going like like speaking in german handing out flyers and i'd be like oh sorry i don't speak german they're like oh no it's okay you come to the club tonight you have fun and i'm like oh fuck like you can't escape it because people like have solid education systems there and learn more than one it's funny like um very quickly like we went from uh, amsterdam to germany Mm. um to berlin and the difference between those two countries is like extremely staggering especially as like a racialized person because uh there are lots of brown people in the netherlands but it doesn't matter. People just stare at you, right? Like you walk around like a tourist if you're not white and people will just stare. Um, and it's like a very unsettling, like hills have eyes type feeling. You go to Germany, everyone's like extremely polite, keeps themselves, but like will approach you at like very weirdly opportune yet inopportune times with like their funky beats ethos. <laughs> and I'm just like, man, I, I fucking hate German. It's true. I hate Germans in Canada. Um, but like you go there and you sort of, you sort of, you know, get into sort of German mindset and it is like, man, like every once in a while, uh, Chapo like has this thing where it fundamentally changes my like view of something like hot couch guys. It was, it was definitely like hot couch guys. And now the second version of that is definitely Der Funky Beats. Um, listen, uh, we just need to embody more funky beats, uh, energy in our lives. And so does the, um, so does the NBA owners association. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, premium subscribers, we're activating you now. All you're going to do for a week is just tweet at the folks from Chapo, telling them to come on our show to, uh, give us some delicious clout. Um, so we need that. Uh, you're, you're our digital soldiers. Uh, let's get to it. Will Menneker, please talk RoboCop with us. Yeah, so we're going to get Will Menneker for RoboCop. Uh, Felix is going to come on for either Avatar or... or Zero Dark Thirty. <laughs> no, or 13 Hours Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. There you go. Uh, we can get Matt Crispin on for like JFK or like some 70s conspiracy movie. Parallax View. Parallax View. I think that would be a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, Virgil and Amber, they can come on for whatever they want. Uh, Virgil, come on, fuck me, because I think he's extremely hot. Um, anyway, that's our primo for this week. Uh, we will uh, see you at the next primo, which will hopefully either be Women Femmes Caucus or Do Not Eat Zero One. It will be one or the other, but we will see. Yep, those will be next. And, of course, uh, as always, you're welcome. Have Th- a great week, everyone. Thanks for subscribing.